Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Robert Port and Craig Frankel, and today we are talking about inherited property resolving tangled title. So let's start off the show really easy. Let's find out who we're talking to. So our first guest is Joanne Johnston, from the legal, who is the Legal Programs Director at Georgia Heirs Property Law Center. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I, I look um, at the wrong person. Oops. Okay. On radio. Um, so I'm Joanne Johnson, obviously. <laughs> um, I work for the Georgia Heirs Property Law Center. We're a 5013C nonprofit law firm. Um, uh, our mission is to increase generational wealth, social justice, and community stability by securing and preserving property rights. Um, we have four offices throughout Georgia, Atlanta, Athens, Macon, and Fitzgerald, Georgia. Um, we have six attorneys, social worker, and two community advocates that work with us, as well as a network of pro bono attorney volunteers and um, grassroots organizational partners. And so we um, focus, we do work statewide, but our um, efforts are largely focused and given priority to Fulton County and Southwest Georgia. And we also have Shanta McBride, who is with the Vincent McBride Law Firm. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. I have been practicing law in Georgia for 14 years now. Um, I have my own law practice in Vinings uh, here in Atlanta, and I practice in the area of estate planning, probate, and real estate. Um, I spent the first decade of my year as a commercial real estate attorney, and that provided me the opportunity to begin volunteering on heirs property cases, which I've worked on since 2008. So I've been in this heirs property space for about 10 years now, and I, I love it, and I love to share what I know and help people as much as I can. So it starts off really easy. Tell our listeners, what is heirs property? Um, so heirs property is um, property that's been passed from generation to generation, um, without a formal transfer of title. So there's um, usually you go to the courthouse and there's a, a deed, and the deed is in the name of someone who's passed away. And so that family has not taken the legal steps necessary to transfer title into one or more living person's names. Um, and, and we call it, it's you know fractured among multiple family members so they each have a share of the property and own it together. And... Um, and we sometimes call it tangled title. It's it's a it's a as we'll talk about, I'm sure, a lot, a, a problem that has to be unwound and can take. It's complicated and it can take a long time to unwind it. Untangling tangled property. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so the the title of our show is inherited property. Um, why is that a problem? One might think, oh great, I'm inheriting property. My parents have left me property, my uncle, my aunt, whomever. Why why is this a problem if property is left as Joanne just described? Well, the heir's property problem, as I often refer to it, really consists of two problems uh, that come with owning this type of property. The first really is the failure of a property owner to fully realize the benefits of what it means to own real estate. Um, As a real estate owner, no matter whether it's residential or commercial, you often have, um, you know, in your bundle of rights as a property owner, the ability to 
sell the property, the ability to lease it uh, and, and generate uh, income from it. And so when you have a number of relatives who own heirs property jointly, uh, they all share that same right, which can lead to disagreements about how the property is to be used and to into whom is actually going to receive a, rental a payments. A disagreement in a family. It happens all the time. <laughs> um, and so you, you have that, uh, that conflict where you can't really fully realize uh, the benefits of owning real property because it essentially is unmarketable. Um, because before you sell it, before you rent it, before you finance it, um, you know, a, a reasonable lender or a buyer or a good tenant would want to make sure that the party with whom they're contracting actually owns the property and has the right to, to deal with it. And so that would require you get the consent of all of the owners. And so and let's underscore that. I think that's really important for our listeners. If you own property, unless it's done right, with more than one person, it's all or nothing. So explain what that means. Well, uh, for example, if you've got a parcel of heirs' property um, and everyone owns it, um, and say that one person is actually occupying the property, they're uh, they're living on the property and their relatives live in Chicago or D.C. or New York, well, if, if that one person who is still on the home place, as it's often called uh, here uh, in, in the South when you're talking to uh, people who may own large agricultural tracts. Um, that person that's residing on the property may want to finance the property to send a child to college, or they may want to finance the property to um, uh, to plant crops and earn income. And so uh, a lender looking at that property would want to make sure that they have the consent of all of the owners. And so if you've got people who are relatives who jointly own it, who are out of touch, who may have fallen out with one another, it may prove very difficult for the person in possession to fully realize the benefits and you know, either sell the property or finance it and, and, and achieve what ordinarily are goals um, that uh, you know, are part and parcel of owning land. Joanne so, explained that a bit. When, it, when she says you, the lender may want it's a little stronger <laughs> yes, than that. Actually, <laughs> okay, the law says that if you own property as tenants in common together, mm -hmm. explain how that works, the all or nothing concept. So I guess I may need to go back and explain how we get heirs property. Yeah. So heirs property can be created when you have a will and you leave your um, property, whether it's a house or land, um, to multiple family members. So they're each owning, um, or you die without a will, and your heirs, according to Georgia law, which is... Georgia has a hierarchy of who inherits if you die without a will, if there are multiple family members who, under that hierarchy, would inherit the property. So those family members, under either situation, co-own the property together as tenants in common. It's undivided, so they can't say, this is my, you know, if it's a larger tract, they can't say, well, this is my five acres, this is your five acres, everyone owns ten acres, um, as tenants in common, and, um, you to finance, for example, a, a sale to finance um, in Atlanta, you know, um, a loan to help you make upgrades or renovate your property. Um, the lender is going to do a title search. They're going to realize that there are multiple family members on the same piece of property who own the same piece of property, and they are going to look and ask and actually demand that either title be consolidated in the person who's possesses the property and who wants the loan or that everybody agree and everyone agree to be responsible and to be obligated for that loan. So Joanne one person veto. Right. Yes. I, I was going to say you also explain to our listeners how this can happen over generations. Mm -hmm. 
So you might have, let's say, great-grandparents who have four kids. Mm -hmm. They leave their property to all four kids. Yes. So then you have four people with tenant-in-common rights, as you've just described, but perhaps of those four kids, a few have children, some don't, and they pass it down the same way. So you could have a piece of property that's owned by multiple people, but they don't have, at least mathematically, the same percentage interest. One may yes. have a quarter, one may have one-eighth, one may have three-fifths, mm-hmm. and, and that's what makes this, amongst many other things, very messy, right? Yeah, and mean, multi-generational. Yes. And you often, especially if, if you've had, you know, properties that came into a family, say, after the Civil War, some by the time you get today to today, family members especially don't know each other. They live elsewhere. They don't know sometimes that they even own this property um, until it gets pointed out to them. Um, and, and don't laugh. We've had many cases <laughs> where the property passed, let's say, politely through carpetbaggers or some other mm-hmm. passage right after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. The original deeds we are seeing of the original transfer are in the 1860s. Mm-hmm. So some of our listeners might think, well, this is really unique, unusual. Why are we talking about that? Shanta, can you give us an idea of how widespread this is? And we've mentioned and uh, that this may occur in rural Georgia, but it's not limited to rural areas. It happens in urban areas as well, right? That's right. Um, This is a problem that, um, you know, it's not selective according to race or socioeconomic background or even uh, geographic location. Uh, This uh, problem really derives as the result of uh, most common laws uh, in, in, in the states providing that in the absence of the will a real property descends to uh, your next of kin, and so that creates the tenancy in common form of ownership. That and I do, I do want to notice. I do want to note the statistic in Georgia. Right, eighty percent of all people die without a will. Right, but this can also happen when you have a will and you simply leave your property to your children. Right. That that that's that's exactly right. Um, the the center was really uh, launched in part. Uh, through the result of research conducted by volunteer attorneys uh, that were at the time working on Georgia Appleseed's air property initiative and to sort of uh, flesh out for you uh, in your question on how widespread the the air property problem is uh, there was research that um, you know that there was research that indicated that of 10 uh, Georgia counties uh, the incidence of air property is very common and, um, you know, from a sheer number standpoint, uh, the value of that property that is essentially unmarketable uh, is very telling of, 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 of why it's important to resolve the, the problem. Um, but, uh, you know, the numbers are easily um, um, in, you know, in, in the millions. And tell so tell our listeners kind of the dollars and the percentages. They'll want to know. <laughs> Well, um, the USDA uh, recently did uh, a research and it conducted uh, a study of heirs property in 10 counties in non-metro Atlanta, uh, and the study identified over 38,000 parcels that were identified as likely heirs property parcels, and the value of those parcels per the county assessor's uh, value is just north of two billion, two point one five billion, and so that you know that's just a slice of you know the, the the market for real estate that is not fully being 
realize from you know from a marketable uh, mm -hmm. standpoint. Um, you know, if, if you have heirs property, um, you've got the two problems that you know that, that really are attendant with it, and that's an ability to market it, to sell it, to lease it, finance it. But the other half of the coin, which I refer to as the you know the other problem associated with heirs property, is the inherent risk of loss that is associated with owning real property as a tenant in common because uh, under Georgia law, as is in the case of, of most other states, if you own property as a tenant in common, not only do you have the, the, the shared right to possess it and to, to, and to occupy it and to use it, but you also have the right to force a sale. You, you, you have the right to go and file a request uh, in court that a judge divide the property um, or divide it by sale, in which case, you know, that leads to what we call involuntary loss of property, which is very common here in the South. And another involuntary loss might be a tax lien. That's if you forget to pay your taxes and you don't know who's supposed to pay, and this is a problem we see over and over and over, that the ta a tax lien comes in or a creditor comes in on one person, forces the sale, and everyone loses everything. Right, right. And I, I tell clients all the time, the, the easiest way to lose your property, no matter how it's owned, the easiest way to lose your property is to not pay the taxes. So if you do nothing else and you want to keep it in the family, make sure that the taxes are paid. So oh, let's talk a little bit about, let's bore down a little more deeply into the tenants in common mm -hmm. issue. And we talked a moment ago about situations where people own, at least mathematically, various percentages mm -hmm. in the property. But that doesn't mean that they, if the tax bill is $1,000, they only have to pay a quarter of it, right? Well, so technically everyone is supposed to know their ownership share and contribute their percentage, their ownership percentage of those taxes. So if everyone owns a tenth of the property, taxes are $100, everyone's supposed to chip in $10. That never, ever happens. Um, it's usually one person, one of the co-owners is bearing the burden of the taxes and paying 100% of those taxes. And that causes a lot of resentment, a lot of anger, and... Um, sometimes just the person who's been paying taxes and the frustration that they've been doing anything and everything they can to hang on to the property and everybody else is benefiting. But Be from the um, taxing authority's perspective, they really don't care. They that don't care. The tenants mm -hmm. have this debate amongst themselves. They need to be paid. Yes. And it would be true that technically each of the tenants in common is fully responsible yeah. for the cost but it's usually it's usually one person and that one person is and one of the there's a couple of myths relating to heirs property and taxes one of the biggest ones is if you pay your pro if you're the heirs property co-owner you're the tenant who is paying the taxes then that means you own a greater share of the property than you inherited and that's not true paying taxes in georgia does not give you a greater ownership interest than anybody else. And so that causes a lot of problems. You know, what if I've been paying taxes for 30 years, I've put in $50,000 in taxes. What do you mean I only own, you know, the quarter, the 25% I inherited, you know, of this property? So. And, that, and that's really because the law presumes that what one co-tenant does for the benefit of the property they do for the benefit of them all. Of course, you can always ask the other people mm -hmm. to contribute, and if they don't, there's a lawsuit way around it, but that means you're suing your first cousin's brother, sister's uncle. Right. 
We're listening, or you're listening, to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts today, Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasowich Frankel. We are talking today with Joanne Johnston, Legal Programs Director at Georgia Heirs Property Law Center, and Shanta McBride, an attorney with the Vincent McBride Law Firm. And we're talking about inherited property, resolving tangled title. Let me take a step back, because I'm not sure we're being clear when we talk about not having good title. So I want to go back to first-year law school. Georgia says you can't show that you have title until it's actually recorded in the deed room. So explain why that's a why that's a problem. Well, with heirs' property, um, you know you have a legal ownership um, in in the property. You have a legal interest, a legal ownership that arises by virtue of your relationship to the the deceased, uh, who you know in most cases had their name on a deed way back when when they acquired the property, and so. Um, you know, the easiest way to, to describe, you know, the unmarketability of title, it really results from a group of owners, a group of successive heirs who own property by virtue of the state's operation of law uh, that says that title passes upon your next of kin, upon your death, if you die without a will. Uh, and so you have these legal interests that are created by law, but you don't have uh, a deed that is associated with the fact that that so you ownership. own it, but nobody knows. There's no knows. record of it. There's not a paper trail. And so, um, you know, someone who is looking to purchase the land or a, a farmer who may be looking to, to rent it out, you know, if they go to the deed room at the local county courthouse and they search title, or if a lender, you know, you know sends a, a, their title attorney to research the title, there will be a point at which they cannot go any further. And, and, and that last deed in the chain, if you will, is the deed that vests title in the the person who last acquired it via contract, via a deed. Who may be dead. Who may be dead, who may be your grandfather or your great-grandfather. And so you've got a break in the chain, but, um, you know, the the law, you know, really provides that, you know, the, you know legally they, there can't be a break in the chain of title from, you know, a pure legal standpoint, but there's just no record of it from which you can you know, bring title forward to, to, to market it. And let's underscore that. The liability is the liability, which means if you don't pay it, it doesn't matter whether you're alive or dead, you're going to lose the property in a tax lien. But in order to sell the property, use the property, rent the property, borrow against the property, suddenly that title becomes very important. Right. You've got to have something, you know, you've, you've got to have a deed uh, or, or some will or something that has uh, some indication of ownership. Uh, that you and you alone, um, you know, own the property from which you can then bargain and trade with others. But you still need legal title. Even right. with the will, right. you're going to have to go back to the court and get a title recorded. Right. It, it's not enough to, you know, carry someone's will around in your, you know, pocket or your purse mm-hmm. and just wave it around at your family members. You've, you've got to, you've got to either probate the will by going to probate court. Uh, in, in becoming appointed so that you then become vested with all of the legal uh, authority and rights from which you could then have an attorney prepare a deed that would transfer uh, the legal ownership of record. And so, uh, th- you know, th- there's a lot more to it than... So let's give the colorful example. Your yeah. grandfather yeah. owned the property and didn't have a will or had a will and never recorded the title, and it went to your 
parents and your parents' siblings, and there's five of them. And now one of your parents has died, and they had two children. So how many probates are we going to have to do to clean up this title using my example? Well, you know, for me, the easiest example is... That was a test. Yeah. (laughs) A lot. A lot. (laughs) So let me... Let's let's maybe uh, go back to your example of the farmer, right? Who uh, wants to buy, lease, uh, hunting lease, timber, whatever, and and let's let's just walk through what happens. Someone like that comes to you, and says, "I found this problem. Help." Mm-hmm. Tell us tell us sort of your your steps, your checklist as you start to work through this problem. Yeah. So um, we the center as a nonprofit have an intake line. So when folks have a problem they call and we ask um, a number of different questions but the things that we're really trying to get at is who is who if you if I went to the courthouse to look at the deed for this property whose name who is whose name is it so who is the last record owner and in Georgia a lot of that for most counties not all is available online mm-hmm. it, it depends it, it's available online for so far back yes so <laughs> if you're dealing with a property that hasn't had any change in record and a recorded deed since 1919, you're going to have to walk to the right. courthouse. B- before um, the Internet was invented. Yes. Um, so it's, it's you know, uh, understanding who is, who is the last recorded ho- deed holder and what has happened in the family since then. So has that deed holder passed away? Okay. Was that deed holder married when they passed away? Um, did that deed holder have a will? Children. If no spouse and no children, were their parents alive? Did they have siblings? And by the way, that one point you want to highlight again, if you have a spouse and you die without a will, now the property is not going to pass through bloodline. Mm-hmm. It's going, your spouse is going to get some mm-hmm. too. And that is not what some people expect when it's the family yeah. home place. Especially right. if the spouse subsequently remarries. Um, and then that there's a chance that, that that spouse could also become a co-owner. It gets that complicated. Um, and it's understanding the family structure um, who's living, who's passed away, who's had a will, and kind of mapping out the ownership ownership structure and who owns what. I, I envision your office has lots of uh, what would look like genealogy. Um, mm-hmm. They're not maps, but, you know, people. Family see, trees. Family yeah. trees, thank For you. For lack of a better term, it's, it's a family tree. It's not a full family tree um, because once you hit a, a, a tenant in common who's alive, we don't necessarily need to know about you know their children or their spouse, um, but it's figuring out ownership percentages and figuring out who's had it, whose estate has been probated, um, figuring out um, the best strategy for resolving this, um, whether it is to go probate one or six, you know, deceased relatives' estates, whether it's you know filing litigation usually a quiet title action or a declaratory judgment act, some sort of litigation in court where you're asking the court to make a, deter- a judicial determination as to who the current living owners are. Um, or, you know, sometimes you can, you can do it through easier means with affidavits and deeds and the like. And then it's understanding what the individual client and the family's goals are for the property. Um, you know, we have a lot of family, a lot of clients who call and say, "I own this property with my four siblings. They don't want it. They want nothing to do with it. So they will, they will absolutely give me their interest in the property, and I will be the owner." And that almost never happens um, because once you know you start talking about changes in ownership, and um, what, that gets people thinking about what they have and what they inherited. Um, and for some people, it's 
well, you know, the person who contacted the center wants to sell, but this is my family history. This is my family. Like, there's no way that I'm ever going to agree to sell. Um, and you have others who are, who see, see dollar signs for the first time. Um, but it's um, understanding what the client's goals is are goals are, and um, sometimes having a family meeting to discuss with the family what the options are and trying to reach a consensus about um, if we can quote unquote untangle the title who in the end is going to who or what in the end is going to be the owner and how are they going to move forward I'm curious whether the center in in working this through do you identify one of the heirs or one of the tenants in common you're going to represent or do you try and work with them as a group because you've identified a whole host mm-hmm. of conflicts where you ha- may have you know, someone who who wants it all and others who want it to be purchased from them. And it seems to me yeah. you, you have situations where everyone might need uh, their, their own counsel to make sure their own best interests are yeah. being looked at. So in most instances, the center will have one or two clients. And th- that will generally be the person who called us, the person who, who has the, who is either living, possessing the property, or has seen this problem go on and is the one who's you know paying taxes or who's just ready to resolve this you know sometimes it's you know the heirs property co-owner says my kids are pressuring me to resolve this so that they don't inherit this problem um but it's um normally we it's usually the person who's most interested in the property or who has the most motivation to resolve the issue um a family leader someone that other members look up to and trust and that's the center client but there's you know there's so many ethical rules um and the concern is is that we took on all family members as clients they would immediately get into start getting into disagreements and under the ethical rules that lawyers have to abide by we would have to disengage so we will um given we'll have these family meetings make clear who the client is um if folks who are not clients we always encourage them to talk to lawyers we've had attorneys like Shunta, who's also on our board of directors, um, who have spoken with heirs who have, you know, who the center is not representing and have quick questions that they just want to talk to a different attorney about. Um, but we always encourage folks to get lawyers and talk to lawyers. So if you jo- have... Joanne, your, your last answer suggested to me or, or gave us the illustration of an uh, uh, an owner who is being pressured by children to deal mm-hmm. with this. That suggests to me that there are some proactive measures that can be taken before someone passes away to to try and address the, the heir's property planning. Shanta, can you give our listeners some idea of some of the things that should be thought about to try and address this if someone is sensitive to it uh while still alive okay um the the first uh the first option is perhaps the easiest one and that is simply just to have an estate plan uh is to have a will uh to have a power of attorney um and and while those measures really are what i refer to as stopgap measures that that will um prevent further heirs property from uh you know sort of having the problem replicate itself for so stopping the plugging yes. the leak yes exactly but it doesn't fix the you know the historical problem it doesn't you know untang- untangle title for the property that you already have an issue with it will just um, prevent the problem from recurring with respect to whatever land you might already have clear title to um, and so that that is that is one 
way that uh, clients can remedy the problem prospectively going forward. Um, you know, there are other options that are available to clients who want to uh, resolve the heirs' property problem, you know, during life. And you can have uh, everyone, you know, meet, as Joanne uh, said, and, and discuss the options. And I, I tend to look at uh, the solution as either, you know, either take one of two routes. Uh, you either resolve and consolidate title through uh, the procedures in the courts, such as, you know, partition actions or quiet title actions, or you can resolve it through conveyancing, which, you know, really is a resolution of the problem by consolidating title through what looks and feels very much like a real estate closing. And so, so when you say consolidating title, what you're really saying is all the family members that may have an interest get together, reach an agreement, exactly. and then document it appropriately. Right. Which right. is the cheapest and easiest if you can reach agreement. Right. And, and to do it as quickly as possible um, so that you don't have any fam family members, you know, die during that process. Because uh, I've, I've seen that happen as well, where you're in the middle of a resolution and you lose family members, and it only complicates the problem. But aside from uh, having an estate plan, I think mediation and getting clients to work towards uh, a resolution where they, you know, resolve it essentially by contract, by exchanging deeds, by uh, executing settlement agreements, whereby, you know, each party exchanged whatever fractional interest they might have um, so that the person who has been paying the taxes doesn't sue them later for their share. Um, other options include tenancy and common agreements, which are uh, very common in the commercial real estate uh, uh, space. But, you know, those agreements are also options for people who own heirs' property uh, as tenants in common, whether the property is, you know, uh, you know, a condo in, in Atlanta or a large agricultural tract uh, in South Georgia. And so a tenancy common agreement would be an agreement where relatives, you know, come together and decide who's going to be in charge of paying the taxes each year, who's going to be in charge of making sure that the property is insured, who will manage the receipt of um, uh, rental income, and who, who will, you know, essentially be the leader as it comes to uh, managing the property. Um, LLC agreements are also another way for parties to convey whatever fractional interest they have into the LLC so that you have an entity that uh, will remain the record owner of title and so that when the members or the family members who own interest in the company pass away, that doesn't impact the title to the property. And so you have consistency um, at the record ownership level um, whereas you, you know, without that, you know, sort of type of ownership, you wouldn't have that. So, Shanta, you just mentioned a um, tenant in common agreement. I'm right. presuming that's something that's filed in the courthouse, so people looking at title will see that these tenants in common have an agreement amongst themselves. That that it, it's not required to be recorded, but it it would be ideal to have it recorded so that uh, the world takes notice as to who has the legal right to act on behalf of the balance of the owners. Um, you might also have uh, a limited power of attorney recorded for that purpose as well so that uh, you know whoever is researching title they have notice as to who has the authority to act on behalf of the entire uh, ownership class. And, and that might be very important. So you may have five owners in three generations, but in a tenancy in common <coughs> agreement, you could say, but I'm going to authorize person one to make the decision to sell or borrow against. 
And if that's what you want, you need to make sure everyone knows on the record. Right. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Robert Port and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We are talking today with Joanne Johnston, uh, Legal Programs Director at Georgia Heirs Property Law Center, and Shanta McBride, an attorney with the Vincent McBride Law Firm. Our topic today is inherited property resolving tangled title. Okay, so Shanta, you talked about a situation where everyone is in agreement, and this is ideal. And, and it may be a royal pain, but at least you're in agreement. In my area of law, I find that families sometimes aren't in agreement. It may be because you're on a second or third marriage. It may be that somebody is estranged, or it may be as simple as they've moved to California. So let's talk a bit, Joanne, about where you aren't in agreement Mm -hmm. and you don't have good title. What does somebody do? So you can do what some of our clients decide to do if we can't resolve it, and they just will continue living with the problem. So you can stick your head in the sand and hope it goes away. We are all familiar with that. But let's assume something a tad more proactive. So um, what um, some clients will do, um, even if – some clients come and want this. Some clients say – you know, I would like a partition, and you can, uh, which is basically a division of the property among the tenants in common. Um, there's two types of partitions. There's partition in kind. So if you have, um, you're able to divide the property up between the co-owners. Obviously, if you have five co-owners of a house in Atlanta, you can't cut that house in five ways. Um, so that's not really an option um, for you know small small houses on small acreage. Um, it is possible, you know, in more rural areas where you do have larger tracts of land. Um, and the other ki- type of partition is a partition by sale, where you ask the judge to order a sale of the property, and then you s- divide up the proceeds according to your ownership percentages. Um, there is um, there's a statute that was passed in 2012. Um, Shanta was involved mm-hmm. in in that process at the time. It's called the Uniform Partition of Heirs Property or the Uniform Heirs Property Partition Act, and it provides some. Say that three times. <laughs> Uniform Heirs Property. I messed it up again. Partition of Heirs Property Act. Um, so um, it, it provides some additional protections with the understanding that um, traditionally and historically, heirs property has been. Um, a lot of land loss, especially in rural Georgia, has been the result of heirs' property ownership, this group ownership among family members. And so that statute does put certain additional protections in play that um, for just specifically heirs' property, additional notice requirements, um, limitations on, um, you know, the on the person who brings the action being able to try to buy the property in right. the end. Um and it, it's something that, that was – Georgia is the second state that passed that act. It's a uniform act. South Carolina just passed it. I think Texas has passed it, some other states. So it's growing um, – it's a growing understanding throughout the country that heirs' property is a problem and leading to land loss, and that special status requires additional protection. So when I, when I look at this, and I've heard you speak many times, as I understand it, there's really kind of two advantages, and I want to make sure I understand it right. One is that everybody who may have an ownership gets a lot more notice and an opportunity to participate. And the second is there's a mechanism essentially to give 
the family members the right to try to buy it together or separately mm-hmm. before it goes to public auction. Yes. Right. And, and, the, and the preferred buyout right under the new law, which uh, went in effect uh, on January 1, 2013, that preferred buyout right really applies only to people who are dragged into court by other co-tenants who are seeking partition. And so um, the new law does, does a couple of things in addition to providing the additional protections. Um, first, it does not uh, unwind or diminish the uh, existing partition laws that were on Georgia uh, on Georgia's books beforehand. The additional protections include uh, essentially the right to have a judge review the facts and determine whether or not the property is uh, heirs' property, and, and, and now heirs' property is a defined term, term under the Georgia Code. And if it is heirs' property, what does that mean? Well, if it is heirs' property, then the next step is that the the law requires the uh, judge to determine a value for the property. And so you can have a value determined for the property in really three ways. The parties can agree as to what the value is. Um, an appraiser, an independent appraiser, can be appointed by the court and file uh, their independent appraisal, at which time the parties would receive notice of the appraisal. They would have time to make objections. If a hearing would need to be scheduled, that would be a time where people could um, you know, either support or, or submit their objections as to why the, the appraisal submitted should not be accepted. But, um, you know, the result of that hearing or the result of the consent agreement um, is that the judge will then enter an order establishing what the fair market value of the property is. And the advantage that the act provides is uh, the old law did not have that procedure uh, by which the uh, the court would have established a floor, if you will, a, a price floor from which, uh, if any sale were to result, it, it you know there there would have to be a sale at or above that price, and so we're certainly it, among the family. Well, yeah, but yes, with respect to the family and uh, at what we call open market sales. Whereas before, under the old law, there was not uh, a requirement that a floor be established, uh, and so you you have some guarantees that if there is an involuntary loss if there is a forced you know if there is a forced sale there is a price below which the property cannot be sold and so that guarantees some more economic protections for people who are hauled into court and my my understanding is one of the goals or purposes of of what you've just described is to prevent a situation where one of the tenants in common makes a deal with a developer or something like that and then they just steamroll everyone else right so by setting a a floor on price it helps to make that whole process i don't know a little bit more equitable but potentially return value to the to the rest of the co-owners right right and even before you get to a sale uh, and Joanne had mentioned this uh, beforehand. There is the preferred buyout uh, right mechanism pursuant to which other family members uh, who are dragged into court, uh, who are the defendants in the action, they can actually buy out the party who brought them to court to begin with. But and still subject to the floor. Subject. In other words, they're going to have to offer at least what the court said it was worth. Right. But the keep in mind that the price at which the family, the defendant family, would be purchasing would be uh, a prorated share of the plaintiff's uh, fractional share. And so you would essentially have a family 
if it was a third-party developer bringing them into court, you would have the family buying out the third party uh, at at a prorated share of whatever the fair market value was established. And then they could c- continue to own the property together without partitioning it. Exactly. I got you. So here we are. We're, we're nearing the end of the show. So I, I promised you off the air in advance I would ask you the fun question. So, Joanne, you start. Here's the fun question. What's the worst example of an air property problem that you have seen? Um, so this happened, I think I started the center with center about two years ago. So this happened maybe a couple months after I started, um, realizing that, um, a, a client who was a lovely woman, um, that her husband was a bigamist. So she was living in the home that he owned. Um, he had passed away. He was a bigamist. She was not the first wife. Um, so, so under Georgia she was law, not she's not legal, a wife. She was not the legal wife. So she had no legal rights. Um, and she did not, could not have inherited uh, the property from her husband. So she went from thinking she owned the entire property to not owning anything. Um, and, you know, th- all of the problems that arose from that. Shanta, you get the same question, of course. <laughs> What's the worst situation you've seen? Well, yeah, I, I'm going to take that uh, question and, and sort of turn it on its head a little bit. Um, the What I thought was perhaps the worst heirs property case soon became perhaps the best um i had you've anticipated our next question (laughs) right well i i have volunteered for um a while on one case Uh, it was a partition action that was filed before the new law came into effect um but at, at some point uh the plaintiff dismissed it and refiled it and now the new law uh, applies and so we're just in the process of working through that and so now I have all of the benefits and protections of the new law whereas before we did not so that that's that's my best and worst case that I so I'm, I'm going to give my own example of a bad case so I have a family where the property passed in 1866 they have wills there were wonderful wills lots of people died and husbands and wives they never recorded a transfer but the property is being farmed by some family members, and the whole issue came to a head when one of the inheritance, probably fifth generation, died, and she had a husband whom she was estranged from mm-hmm. but had not divorced, and he wanted his share. And this, unfortunately, is before the heir's property law, and he files a partition and essentially tries to take it all, and that and of course, while we're doing this, every generation dies. So we're now on generation six. So I will may come to you for that problem. So Joanne, <laughs> success story. Success story. Um, you know, we had a client come to us. She was named the executor of her mother's estate. Um, it was a five-acre piece of property with a house, and the um, it was a situation which heirs' property was created through a will. The mother in her will said, I want um, the house and the one acre surrounding the house to go to daughter, who I'm naming as executor, and the rest of the land to go to the other daughters um, collectively. And so through various um, probate and other mechanisms, we ended up um, identifying, you know, there was one, one of the daughters said, I don't really want to take on the burden of ownership, um, so I don't really want to accept this interest in my proper in my mother's property. So we were able to reach an agreement whereby the four remaining daughters split up the property and each received a tract. And 
um, before the client came to us and during the whole process, there was a lot of animosity between the sisters. The client was paying the taxes. No one was contributing. She was bearing the burden of the, of the probate fees as well. And so um, talking to her as after we had resolved it and the four sisters each received you know, a piece of the property, it was her realizing that they were getting along better and that they were able to come back together as a family um, after that situation had been resolved and to, and to um, bring those family bonds back together and to move past what had happened. So. Well, that's, that's great. It's always wonderful when we can move beyond arguments about money and property and, and get the family relationship back. So uh, as we're getting ready to close, uh, we'd like each of you to tell our listeners uh, how they can reach you, phone numbers, uh, email addresses, uh, websites, Twitter, whatever, whatever is the best way to, uh, to reach out to you. So, Jan, let's start with you. Um, so the Georgia um, Heirs Property Law Center, um, the, um, our intake line, so if someone has Heirs Property or has questions about Heirs Property, um, you can call 706 706- Four two four seven five five seven. If you just want to learn more about Ayers Property or about what the center does, um, the website is www.gaairsheirsproperty.org. Shanta? All right. And my number uh, is 404-990-3486. And if you wish to read more about my practice and submit a request for a consultation, you can visit my website at www.vincentmcbridelaw.com. And I want to note the lesson of the day. So the lesson of the day is if you have heir property, if you have property that you inherited from the family, first, go check and see if you have correct title. And make sure that you do. And if you don't, talk to your family members because cooperation before there's a dispute really is a good way to keep the family together and make sure everybody gets what the patriarch or matriarch wanted. Yes. As we are wrapping up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gesselitz Frankel, please go to our website at gesselitzfrankel.com and remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Joanne Johnston, Legal Programs Director at Georgia Heirs Property Law Center, and Shanta McBride, an attorney with the Vincent McBride Law Firm. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Thank you.